Ephesians chapter 6 tonight, Ephesians 6, and we'll continue looking at our series on dealing with spiritual warfare. The last time we looked at this, we dealt with our adversary, the devil, and we talked about his agenda and how he's working, and we're going we're gonna to go back and we'll uh, review some of that a little bit later at another, another time, but I'd like for us to look tonight at at something that that will give us an introduction into a, a next section of this series. And uh, again, Ephesians chapter 6 is where we've been. We'll be here tonight. In verse number 10, and if you don't mind, if you're able to stand one more time, and let's look at these verses, beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may, may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And we'll stop there. Again, we've been focusing on this passage. And one of the fundamental, foundational passages, I believe, when it comes to this matter of spiritual warfare. And we looked at and we've seen Paul describe the adversary, his forces. We talked about the realm of this battle and the, and the heavenlies. This is a, um, a greater battle than that which is seen on the physical. And he explains another fundamental rule of spiritual warfare. And that is by introducing to us the weaponry in the Christian's arsenal. And so tonight I want to preach on this thought, your weapons for your warfare. Your weapons for your warfare. Thank you. Please be seated. In a catalog fashion, Paul lists the advantages the, of the Spirit-filled believer. What we have when we are in Christ, Christ in us, walking in dependence upon the power of His Spirit, when we're filled with His Spirit, the advantage we have when it comes to battle against our enemy. And it has to do with what we are to wear spiritually. As I mentioned, we just went on a, a, a trip, and as Christy and I packed, we uh, we recognized we were going south, and we did not include 
in our uh, suitcases, jackets, and sweaters, and scarves, and gloves, and wool socks, because it would not have been appropriate for going south. In fact, it was cooler where we were than it was when we got back here yesterday. And uh, so I, I think we could have fared better with sweaters further south in Florida than being here, but uh, that's just the nature of this weather. But we packed according to the environment. And Paul is trying to get us to see that we have a wardrobe provided by God for the battle in which we're facing. And so let's talk about this armor tonight. I want you to see the nature of the armor, the need for this armor. But also we want to look at the names of the armor. Number one, the nature. The Apostle Paul doesn't waste any time spelling out the nature of the authority that we have in spiritual warfare. He, he says in verse number 11, put on the whole armor of God. He says in verse 13, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God. You know, Paul gives the idea and insists on all or nothing. You know, Christians need to be fully clothed if we're going to be uh, facing full victory. And it's not this half-heartedness. That's, that's such a, an insult to genuine Christianity, a slothfulness, a half-heartedness, a casualness when it comes to the fight. Oh, the Lord was the one who had, had encouraged and challenged his disciples to come apart and, and rest and, and, and to be able to experience rest. And he invited those in Matthew 11 who are laboring to, for their, their salvation to come unto him and find rest. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And, and Paul writes to us in Hebrews of this matter of finding rest, inviting us, Hebrews chapter 4, into this great rest. But when it comes to this matter of certain things, our commitment to him and our engaging in the battle, it's taking on the whole armor. It's not just fiddling. It's not just uh, dabbling. It's an all-in mindset. But before Paul gets to the armor, he gives us a very important exhortation in verse number 10. Notice again, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And this is important because it doesn't matter how uh, wild we are by the armor. The armor is not going to help us if we don't recognize and understand the significance of this command in verse 10. What he's telling us is that this battle is not ours. The battle is the Lord's. It's a battle. We have to show up. We have to be prepared. We have to fight. But it's not our battle. And the reason we know that is because this is a passive command versus an active command. In other words, when he says be strong in the Lord, he's not telling us to do as much as he's telling us to allow. Again, we, we heard testimony this morning. You've been challenged about surrender. And surrender is our cooperating with him. It's allowing God. When Jesus said in John 3, you must be born again. It's not something Nicodemus could do. In fact, he asked, how can a 
fully grown man be born, shall I enter back into my mother's womb and be born? He was thinking of something active and God was getting across to him. It is something passive. You have a choice. You have a say so. You have a vote in this. But being born again is not what you do. It's what you allow God to do in your life. Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. That too is a passive command. Meaning you can't fill yourself with the Spirit. You can't plug into a spiritual outlet somewhere. It's not a battery to recharge. Being filled with the Spirit is surrendering to the Spirit of God. It's allowing the one who's in you, who is Lord and Savior, to be your Lord and Savior. And so here too is another passive command. It means God is the one who supplies the strength. Not us. Our job is to dress for success by putting on the armor that God supplies. See, six pieces of spiritual armor are named here in Ephesians 6. And they're divided into two categories based upon the usage of two different verbs. The first three pieces of armor Paul uses here in verses 14 and 15 with this idea of having. Notice he says, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Then in verse 16 and 17, he gives another verb and it's the verb take, taking. Verse 16, above all, take, taking the shield of faith wherewith ye shall be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So one category, the first three, is having. The other is taking. The difference is those first three pieces of armor are things that we already have on. The idea is that uh, we're, we are to wear these pieces of clothing all the time. Uh, the way you put on your clothes in the morning, you're, you wear them throughout the day. But those other pieces of armor, namely the sword and the shield, well, you pick them up as you need them. You take them as you need them like a baseball player would pick up his bat when it's his turn or his glove when it's his time to go out. Understanding these distinction, this distinction, it's helpful because it helps us understand how to use the armor that God has given to us. So the nature of the armor. But number two, the need for our armor. We do need the whole armor of God. We do. I'm not sure if we're fully convinced of that. You say, well, how do you know what I'm convinced of? Because I don't know that I've been fully convinced of it. Though I'm in agreement with it, and that's, it's different uh, than just being in agreement and being fully convinced. You can be in agreement that a, um, a, a vest, bulletproof vest that Brother Mooney would put on is needful. But it's one thing to be in agreement about it and it's another thing to be absolutely convinced that I need to have it on in that line of work. We need to be fully convinced. And I think Paul helps us understand, give you three reasons why we need the armor of God. One reason you and I need God's armor is that we're fighting a spiritual enemy. 
We're fighting a spiritual enemy. We're not fighting flesh and blood. Though that's where we tend to to have most of our transaction. That's where we exact most of our business. But that's not where the battle lies. And therefore, we need God's whole armor, full armor of God, because you and I are fighting a spiritual enemy. Let's talk about our need for the armor of God as Paul explained it here. Notice in verse number 11. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The key phrase here is stand. And he repeats it again in verse 13. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may, may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Notice verse 14. Stand therefore. So we've already talked in detail about our enemy but he's trying to get us to see there's a need here to stand. And if we're going to be able to stand, we have to understand what we're standing against. We're standing against a spiritual enemy you cannot see. One that is not just going to, if you're quiet enough, he's just going to keep walking by. No, he's seeking you. You don't see him. He sees you. And he's an adversary. He's the enemy. And he is out to destroy you. The second reason we need God's armor is because of the nature of the victory that Christ has won for us. Not only because of the spiritual enemy we're facing, but because of the nature of of the victory. Paul told us three times that our goal is to stand, stand firm. And that really means hold your ground. Hold the ground that Jesus has already won for us. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us, in spite of what some TV preachers you may have heard say, the Bible doesn't tell us to attack Satan. The Bible tells us to stand our ground against him. To stand firm. Why? Because Jesus has already invaded Satan's domain. Jesus has already won back all the territory that Adam lost. So our job is to hold the ground that Jesus has won. Not to fight to win. Our job is to hold, to stand. Because we're fighting from a position of victory... We're not fighting for victory. We're fighting from a position of victory. So stand, hold that. Ephesians 1 and verse 3 tells us God's already blessed us with every spiritual blessing that's possible to be given to us. So everything that God is ever going to do for you in terms of giving you his power, his authority, his victory, it's already been done. Your spiritual victory has already been won. It was sung about today. Your weapons are weapons of authority because of the decisive victory that Jesus has won. So stand, hold firm. Don't give up ground to Satan. Here's a third reason we need this whole armor. Notice in verse 13. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand or be able to withstand in the evil day. Third reason we need our armors because of the evil day. What is the evil day? Well, this is the time when things are at its worst. It's the time when all hell breaks loose and comes against you. 
It's the time when the battle is intense. We need the whole armor of God, that we can stand and not give up ground. And if you're finding it pretty easy right now, enjoy it, because the evil day is coming. And that's not pessimism, it's just reality. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit ye like men, be strong. In other words, stand firm in the faith. And that's the key. We can stand firm if our faith is in the one who provides us with the whole armor. God wants us to hold our ground. God wants us to not budge when the evil day comes, when, when everything seems to fall apart. Sometimes people think, well, God understands. He, he knows that, that I'm but frail and dust. Yes, he knows that. Well, he understands if I just slip up and, 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 I, and, and I blow it and, and, and he understands. It's just hard. He understands. Well, he understands that we're sorry sinners, but there's, while the Bible admits defeat, it never excuses it because he's given us the equipment, the whole armor so that we don't have to give up ground and stand. Then I want you to see one last thing. Let's go ahead and jump into the names of the armor. Let's take a brief look at each piece of the armor that God's provided us. These are weapons that we must know how to wear. Not only how to wear them, but how to wield them to make the most of our spiritual authority in Christ. Notice in verse 14. Stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth. And here we have the belt of truth. Our spiritual armor is patterned after the armor and the weapons of a Roman soldier of this day. These soldiers wore a long tunic that flowed down to the ground. But when it came time to fight, the soldier would pick up his tunic. It would, it, it would, it would take that long flowing garment and would tuck it inside of his, his belt for mobility in the battle. And so this Roman soldier carried his sword on his belt. His breastplate was also connected to his belt. The belt was very fundamental because everything else was connected to it. It held everything together. And that's the way truth is designed to be in our lives spiritually. The truth is an objective standard of reality that stands outside of our experience and stands above our opinions. Let me say that again. Truth is an objective standard of reality. It stands outside of our experience and it stands above our opinions. That standard of truth is what? Well, Jesus told us in John 17, 17, thy word is truth. Are you awake with me tonight? Is the rain putting you to sleep? And say, no, your preaching is. Well, if I put you to sleep, it's only fair that I wake you up. So I put you on fair notice tonight, all right? Great. It's the beginning point of authority, truth, truth. And so we have the, the belt 
of truth. Not only the belt of truth, but the second piece of armor is the breastplate of righteousness. Again, in verse 14, stand therefore having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness. Remember the Roman soldier's breastplate connected to the belt, but the breastplate protected his heart, vital organs. What is the best protection for your heart in spiritual warfare? Well, it is to be covered in Christ's righteousness. And that righteousness of Christ will be reflected in a righteous lifestyle. Righteousness ought to characterize the people of God. When you're saved, positionally, you and I have been credited to our account the righteousness of Christ. So that positionally, we're righteous in Him. So that practically, we can live righteous. Again, this is not about rolling up your sleeves and gritting your teeth and doing the very best you can. No, what it is is recognizing how did I become righteous? It's by depending upon the righteous one to save me. And in order to be righteous in our living, we have to depend upon the same Holy Spirit of the living God who dwells within to enable us to be what we're supposed to be and do what we're supposed to do. So moral purity, it's a must. If we're going to find success in using the weaponry that God's given to us, and the breastplate of righteousness is part of the armor that we wear all the time, because every day we're dressed in Christ's righteousness positionally so that we can live practically in the righteousness of Christ. In other words, you can't expect to have God's hand placed upon a dirty vessel and think that God's going to protect us when we have insulted a holy God and we've taken for granted the powerful and precious blood of Jesus. If, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another, meaning one with him. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5, 16, if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Why? Because God doesn't do sin. And so the key is we must have the breastplate of righteousness so that we can practically live out the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because that's one of the best places to protect our heart from the evil one. The third piece of our spiritual armor. And the last of these three pieces that we're to wear every day is found in verse 15. It's the pair of shoes and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. A pair of shoes. And some of you ladies just got excited when you heard about more shoes. But these shoes are very important. It's the gospel of peace. If you're going to stand firm, you definitely need reliable footwear. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul said that Jesus was our peace. Ephesians 2.14 so we're still talking about getting dressed up in Jesus. 
the gospel of peace, the good news of Jesus Christ, it not only brings us truth, it doesn't just bring us righteousness, but it also brings us the peace of God because we have peace with God. And as we take steps in life, the good news of our relationship with God will confirm our steps with rest in our soul. Now we come to the three pieces of the Christian's armor that Paul says we need to take up as the need arises. The first one is the shield of faith. And that's in verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith, which allows us to do what? It says to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. A Roman soldier carried into battle a four and a half foot square shield. And that shield would protect him. The shield of faith that protects us from anything Satan could fire at us is acting on the truth that we say we believe. We take up the shield of faith and we take the truth that we amened on Sunday and we live it out on Monday. See, Satan wants to hit us with as many flaming arrows as he can. That way, while we're fighting one fire, he can hit us with another. How can we put out Satan's fires? You can't. You can't. But the shield of faith can. So if we will act on God's word and believe him, God will send, I believe, his angelic host to snuff out Satan's fiery arrows as they come in. When we operate on the truth that we do know, God will take care of what we don't know. I believe we have more truth rolling around within our cranium. It would be no problem whatsoever to see an awakening in America if we as God's people, as the church of the living God, would just obey the truth we already know. Here's another, the second piece of armor that we must take up as the need arises. Verse number 17, and take the helmet of salvation, the helmet of salvation. And this helmet of salvation is the next piece of armor that gives us authority over the enemy. The helmet, it protects the head. The control center of the body. The purpose of a soldier's helmet was to absorb the blows without causing damage to the head, much like a football player's helmet absorbs the shock of blows to their head. And we're talking about the battles you and I face every day. And with the helmet of deliverance protecting us, we have the authority to get on top of our circumstances instead of letting our circumstances bury us each day. Paul's talking about the use of the word, not just the existence of the word of God. He's talking about using, he's talking about depending upon the power of the word of God. This helmet allows us to say to Satan, go ahead, hit me with your best shot. Why? Because Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. See, the helmet's visor, it allows us to see Jesus, Hebrews 2 and verse 9, and focus on him so we will relate uh, every area of our life to the identity that we have in Christ. But there are times where 
we develop a spiritual Alzheimer's disease and we forget our identity in Christ and we lose our spiritual authority. So we need that helmet to protect us, protect us from the blows and allowing us to keep our eyes fixed and focused on Jesus. Now we're ready to complete the armor. We do so by taking up the sword of the spirit, verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now this was not the soldier's long sword. This sword was a short dagger-like sword about 10 inches long. It had a needle-like point and was sharp on both sides. It was used for close infighting and could do some very serious damage. The term Paul used for word, notice again verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The term that Paul uses for word of God is not referring to the Bible as a written book of truth, the way we would normally think of it. This is the word. If I were to hold up the Bible, this is God's word. He's not referring to it there. That would be the Greek word logos. And you're perhaps familiar with that. A Bible software is called logos, referring to the entirety, the body of truth. Instead, the word that Paul uses in Ephesians 6 and verse 17, when he refers to the word of God, is the Greek word rhema. Rhema refers to the utterance of God, the word spoken. It could be a sentence. It could be a verse. It could be just one word. Remember Peter in the boat cried out in Matthew 14, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. You know, Peter placed his confidence in one word. Jesus said, come. Placing his confidence in the authority of the word of God and in the giver of that word, Peter was enabled to do what Peter could not do. And Peter was enabled to be what Peter otherwise could not be. Paul is talking about this usage of the sword of the spirit. One of the best examples of wielding the word, the rhema, is found in the temptation of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. Satan attacked, but Jesus answered, remember, it is written. Now he didn't just say it's written and, and, and let the devil look it up. No, he told him what was written. He got specific. He was in this battle and he took that, that rhema, that, that 10 inch dagger, and he wielded that to defeat Satan with the authority and the power of the word of God. Jesus hit the enemy with the word and the battle was over. It's a waste of time, listen, to memorize scripture if we're not using it in spiritual warfare. Well, our weapons of spiritual warfare, they're powerful. They're complete. But they're not going to do us a lot of good if we don't know how to use them. And thankfully, the Apostle Paul kept on writing. Notice what he says in the very next verse. He gives us the secret to using this great authority of weaponry in our warfare given to us by God. Notice verse 18. Praying, what's the word? Always. 
Some of you are looking around. I'll wait till you catch up with your Bible, verse 18. I don't know if you're looking for the word to be descending like a dove upon you there, but uh, let's look at it, verse 18. Praying always with all what? And supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. He's giving us access to this authority. He tells us how to get dressed and then he tells us how to use the authority that we possess. In other words, he's telling us it's prayer that gains, that gives, that provides access to the authority needed for the warfare to be victorious. Prayer's the way we get dressed for battle. And so for that reason, we're going to spend some time again um, in this matter of prayer and prayer as it applies to spiritual warfare. Maybe somebody thinks, well, don't we, haven't we exhausted this matter of prayer? We spend a lot of time talking about prayer. Brother Humbert talked about prayer. The fact is, we're never going to exhaust this matter of prayer because we'll never exhaust God. But there is something that is vital. If we're going to be victorious in the battle, and the battle's raging, whether you, you uh, want to get up out of, get out of bed tomorrow the battle will come to you in bed. And you've got to understand that God has given us everything that we need not to, uh, to decline, uh, not to, to uh, limp in defeat. He's given us everything that we need to be in victory. And he's giving us the authority to access this victory through prayer. And we'll talk about that another time. Let's stand together. Let's close in prayer. Lord, pray that you'd help us to see what we can't see. And that is the battle that's raging and the fierceness of this battle. If eyes could see what you say, the news would be nonstop 24 hours a day covering this and they would never have to sensationalize it because it's a lot more horrific and it's a lot more detailed and it's so powerfully real. Because we can't see it with our senses, we tend to minimize. And that's exactly what I believe our enemy would have us do. So Lord, awaken us as to who you are. Awaken us as to the battle. But also awaken us as to the authority that you've given to your people. Lord, I thank you that being part of the church, we are on the winning side. We are on the offense. The gates of hell, the authority of hell, it cannot stop what we are advancing. And that is the cause of Jesus, the kingdom of God. So we thank you for the great privilege to be a part of this uh, ministry, but also to be a part of the winning side of this battle. So teach us and help us. And we ask this in your name and for your name's sake. As the piano plays, I invite you to do business with God.